Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 26th, 2020. This is episode 2667 of the Survival Podcast. And today we're going to talk about more failed policies of COVID-19 mitigation, i.e. the lockdowns and everything that we have done um, in response to covid This will be a good one to share with people to open their minds if they're at all willing to listen. Uh, I've got a few things to say up front, but there will be no commercial content in the beginning of today's show. I'll do a quick uh, bit of commercial content at the very end, but we're going to go straight into it. No housekeeping today either um, to make it a little bit more shareable because I think this is important. If you agree with me in my summation that we have made a lot of mistakes in how we've handled this and the lockdowns were wrong, I still want you to be skeptical with everything I say today. If you come out of the gate skeptical, that's great. Either way, I would like you to go to the website today, thesurvivalpodcast.com, and given that you might be listening to this uh, sometime in the future, it might not be today's latest episode, look for episode 2667. Uh, you can find it really quick if it's long in the future now. Of course, then we'll know if I'm right or if you know the skeptics are right, uh, if it's pretty far in the future. But you just search for 2667, you'll find it. And 2667 in the search box, hit enter, and you'll find the episode really quick. Um, because everything that I'm going to tell you today, that I'm going to tell you this is factual, is sourced where you can click a link and you can look at the data. And everything that I have that's sourced where you can look at the data is a actual scientific organization. In many instances, the same ones telling you that we have to lock everybody up or grandma's going to die. The same people who you trust with that conclusion, I'm using their own data in many of these instances. If they are news stories or something like that, these are reputable news sources. They're not some guy with a blog post on Medium. Um, 100% of this is sourced and verifiable. And I believe that's incredibly important if we're going to be able to actually discuss this. I am not saying today that COVID is nothing. I'm not saying we shouldn't do anything at all. I'm not saying just let the weak people die. Um, I'm not saying I don't care about the elderly. I'm not saying that we should go back to having 50,000 people pile into a giant nightclub and swap spit on the dance floor. I'm not saying any of that. I am saying what we have done is has done more harm than it has prevented, and that if we do not cease this mindset soon, we are hurling the entire Western world into a global depression, not a recession. And I think it's really important that we start to understand the difference between those words as well. What you have seen in your life as an adult, and almost every adult left alive, because the people that are old enough to actually remember anything about the Great Depression... You were so young, you really didn't understand it, even if you're still around, and I doubt most people that are 98 years old are listening to this show anyway. Okay, so no one alive really knows what a depression looks like. And I think we need to be in touch with that reality. I remember the stagflation and the recession of the 70s. 
I remember very much kind of the, 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 the small, moderate recession of the Bush, first Bush administration. Of course, we all remember what happened around you know, the turn of the 2000s with the dot-com bubble breaking. We all remember what the recession of 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, that period looked like. What we're seeing today makes that look like a joke. So I, I really encourage you to just, whether you want to or not, just suspend your skepticism long enough to listen to my points today. And then, by God, I am the last person who will ever say, don't check on what I say. I want you to check every claim that I make. I will give you some of my thoughts estimations, you know, summations today. When I do, I do that, I will I will inform you. I am giving you some opinion and some forethought and some extrapolation here. When I give you everything else today, it will be again 100% verifiable data that you can go look at the source and verify for yourself. And I think the deeper you dig, if you do it the right way. And what I mean by the right way isn't the method, but with the right mindset of I just want to know the truth no matter what anybody says and no matter what I think. If you, The deeper you go, the more you'll convince yourself that where I'm coming from makes sense. Okay? Let's start off with a quote of the day, though. And I have a great quote of the day to you for you today by William James. And it explains kind of the situation we're in perfectly. And it'll let me hit my first bullet point of why people are so in denial of facts and resistant to good news of any kind at this point. Uh, William James once wrote, We need only, in cold blood, act as if the thing in question were real, and keep acting as if it were real. And it will infallibly end up by growing into such a connection with our life that it will become real. In other words, if we act as though something is true for long enough, even if it's false, it will become real to us in our lives. And that's where we're at today. We have people that are completely in denial of fact, and they never believe anything that approaches being good news about COVID, but they will wrap their arms around the worst information. You tell them that it looks like people can get reinfected, and they believe it. But you tell them that the studies actually show that that's not really the case, and we have conclusive studies from multiple sources now that show that those instances where they called it reinfection was simply the test picking up dead virus. We know this is scientific fact at this point, but they still say, well, we don't really know that. Literally embrace in a full-on body hug the negative and repel anything that's positive. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And then you give them factual information. Like I'm about to give you, I'm about to hit you in the head with two by four after two by four of fact on this. But they can't believe any of it, and it just means you want old people to die. What you have right now is a mix. For the politicians, this is not a mystery. If you are a politician, even one that's kind of moving at a reasonable speed of reopening uh, versus one that's still got everything locked down, if you're, if you're, my governor, Governor Abbott of Texas versus Como of New York. Abbott's in the same place as far as being stuck with what he says and how careful he has to be going forward because if you just open everything up right away and let everything go back to mostly normal with some common sense social distancing put in there, you're basically saying no matter how quickly you do that or how slowly you do that, if you don't try to pantomime at least a, a phased reopening, what you're saying is, I was wrong to shut it down in the first place. And that means 
all the bad things that came from the shutdown, all of the people that lost their jobs, all the people that had their lives disrupted, all of the things that were derailed, all the things that were going to take years to recover from, I made a bad decision, and my decision is a big part of why those things are true. Now, if you're a politician, you understand how dangerous that is if your goal is to stay in office. And the goal of 99% of politicians is to stay in office. It's what they're actually good at. That's why we have incumbents that stick around so long and, and, and people always saying things like we need you know, term limits instead of just voting for somebody else. So the politician double, triple, quadruple down in opposition to fact and new data makes perfect sense. It's political suicide to say, I screwed this up. I don't actually think it is, but I think the, the safe play for the politician is to believe it is. I actually think the first politician that would come out of this and go, you know what, I listened to all the experts. We didn't know three months ago, four months ago, what was going on. The projections were horrific. It seemed like the right thing to do. I made a decision. In hindsight, that decision is wrong. But frankly, you didn't have to make that decision, and I did. I'm willing to admit my mistake correct from my errors, and we're going forward aggressively with the following phase in, I think that politician hits a home run and becomes a leading candidate for higher office in the future, whoever that first politician is to do that, that had enough power in the first place to be part of this. But I, I, I don't see it happening. But the individual has now acted in the words of William James, as if this thing, this fear, were real for months. They have diligently washed their hands to the point where their skin wore off. They have worn a mask whenever they've looked out the window. We have people driving around in cars wearing a mask. Driving around in cars by themselves wearing a mask. We have people swimming with masks and gloves on. This, this does not make any scientific sense. They have acted if it's real for so long that it has become real to them. And when you try to take away something like that from a person before they're ready to let go of it, it's like telling them they're not who they are. It's like attacking their very identity. We have so put ourselves into this thing, and we have been so affected by it for so long, that now to tell somebody it's not true is like telling them, if your name's Bill, and I tell you, your name is not actually Bill, it's Bob. How would you feel if somebody did that to you and you found there was a consorted effort to convince you that the name you thought you had was not your real name? And how much evidence would it take to convince you that you were lied to your whole life, that people just played a mean trick on you and called you by a different name, and here's your birth certificate, and here's when you were born, and here's the pact everybody signed. Like It would be really hard to accept Because you identified as Bob versus Bill, or Bill versus Bob. And that's what we're at now. People have done this. But let's take a look at just some facts. One of the things I said from the very beginning is whatever the number is you're told of cases of this, and therefore the resulting hospitalization rate and the death rate, serious complication rate, etc. from this, whatever that number is you're told, multiply it by at least 10. Probably 20. That's what I, and I mean, when this was not even going on in the United States yet, I said that. And the reason I said that was because when I look back at past situations like this, with viruses like this, that has always been the case. That's kind of a minimum. You, when a new novel virus comes out that has a, 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 a significant impact on the human population, 
it's you always see the people who get sick first. The people who get sick first are always the most susceptible to it, and you always see only the worst first. And there's always some huge percentage of people that before we knew what it was, just figured it was the cold or the flu and didn't worry and went on with life. And there's also a huge segment of people who had almost no symptoms. that thought, oh, I had to sniffle, it was an allergy, or they had nothing. They didn't even know they had it. And, and this goes in all types of diseases across all classifications, unless you have something with a significantly high lethality rate. Like if you have the plague then you have people dropping over like flies. If you have smallpox, right, That's these are serious pandemics. That Smallpox is estimated to over uh, the full duration of its ravaging against humanity have killed a billion people. A billion. So that, yeah, when something like that hits, it's really evident. But when something hits that has a propensity for some of the people to have mild to non-symptomatic cases. And coronaviruses always do. The coronavirus is a cold. Now, people will get triggered when I say that. Because cold, oh, the cold, ah, ah. colds can be really minor or they can be really bad. Coronaviruses that hit poultry is a chicken cold. It's not a chicken flu. It's not an influenza virus. It's a coronavirus. The coronavirus is what we call the common cold. The common cold, in all its permutations, it's come back year after year after year, a little mild, a little bad, whatever, is a coronavirus. And in all cases with coronavirus, even the ones that have been some of the scariest ones, like the original SARS, there are people who have almost no symptoms. So how do you identify a patient with no symptoms before you know the virus is a thing? And the answer is you can't. Well, I was told, shut up, shut up, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. Listen to the experts. Wear your mask. Stay inside. Save lives. And I've, I pointed out over and over again, this is always the case. Now we have numbers. IHME, who came out with all of the horrific forecasting, 2.2 million Americans are going to die. Even with the strictest lockdowns everywhere, it's going to be at least 200,000. Those people, the people you trusted, the authority that you appealed to, is my source of these numbers that I still consider conservative. But what happened recently is IHME, who puts out the modeling website where you can go see this is how many cases there have been, this is where we think we're going, this is how many we expect, this is how many deaths, this is hospital rate, this is the effect on the hospital system, all of those things. They changed the entire way that website looks. They changed all their graphs. They changed everything. And they did it, and they completely erased all the old data. There's no record of the old data, because the old data is an embarrassment. All the things they forecasted, especially in places we'll talk about today, like Sweden, uh, places like Oklahoma, places like South Dakota, places that didn't do the Nazi-level lockdowns, it's the places like New York City did, none of their predictions happened. But what they do now have is they have access to antibody tests, and they have real hard numbers of actual deaths, or at least ones that are somewhat hard because some of them have been blown up and inflated. Um, and, I mean, Pennsylvania got caught red-handed and had to change the number back down. Right? That happened. That's a fact. That's not my opinion. Okay. Um, New York, in one day, called almost 3,000 deaths COVID deaths after they had already been ruled a death from another cause by doctors. In many cases, those patients were already buried 
and bureaucrats went and changed the cause of death without examining or testing the patients in direct conflict with the MD that signed off on the death certificate. But even if we just let that go, IHME has real data now, not just projections, and they have real antibody tests, and not just the kind of marketing company type antibody tests, the proven to be, at least it's accurate within a known range, which means when you're making a model, you can compensate for the error rate. Uh, the, the one made by Roche, very, very accurate. Lots of test data coming in now. Texas is reporting their data. New York's been reporting their data for over a month off of that test. And they now can tell you, well, on this day there was X number of confirmed cases. But that actually translates out to Y number of estimated cases, how many people really had it. And what I did, because I didn't want to sit and go through three months' worth of data, and do every single day. I took five days at random. I made a list of five dates, starting in March, ending in May, without looking at the data. And then I went and got the data off the IHME website. I'm going to read those cases to you now, tell you what the totals are, and tell you what it means. This is all factual. There is no way around. You cannot change what I'm about to give you. This is official data from IHME, the watchdog organization providing all this data that your government is making decisions based on, or at least should be, this part of it anyway. On March the 21st, there were 6,405 confirmed cases. IHME now estimates on that day there were actually 215,609 cases. And that discrepancy is probably the largest one you'll see today because there was so little testing at that point that a lot more was being missed, even symptomatically. So the gap will narrow, but not that much. On April 12th, there were 30,396 confirmed cases. Estimated number of cases, 213,777. April 24th, confirmed cases, 30,250. Estimated cases on the same day, 215,605. May 3rd, confirmed cases, 26,964. Estimated cases, 277,837. May 14th, there were uh, 23,619 confirmed cases. Estimated cases on that day, 327,997. When I add those up, not using Common Core but a simple calculator, the total number of confirmed cases from those five days combined, 117,634 cases. The estimated number of cases in those five days combined, 1,250,825 cases in just five days. That is roughly 10x. It's more like 11. But everybody knows how to divide and multiply by 10. So just take the hospital rate and divide it by 10. Just take the death rate and divide it by 10. Just take the serious complication rate and divide it by 10. And that is a conservative adjustment of the real numbers. And with that, we go from a death rate of about 2.7%, case fatality rate about 2.7%, to 0.27%. The most conservative adjustment gives you 0.27% death rate. And my question for you is, does it make sense to literally destroy the Western world's economy for a virus that has a death rate of point two anything percent? And my summation is it doesn't. Again, it doesn't mean we don't do anything. 
But I also kind of want to back up my claim that even that number is conservative. So when I look at Texas's um, results, and I think Texas would be a great state because we have a significant number of cases, a fairly low population density, and we don't get the extraordinary um, uh, penetration of asymptomatic case numbers that we do in a place like L.A. County or New York City. New York City has an infection rate as of a month ago, again, this is verifiable data, of 25%. That was according to Governor Cuomo. Okay, he came out and said, yeah, about 25% of the city has been infected at this point. That means there were almost 2 million asymptomatic cases in New York City. But I think if we try to take that number and, and spread it across the whole country, and that's, say that's representative of you know upstate New York, like Poughkeepsie, let alone South Dakota or Montana, we're being disingenuous. Texas, though, is a very spread out state. Even our densely populated area, Dallas-Fort Worth is the metroplex I live in. It's more than two cities. It's two cities with a bunch of cities in and around it. But the total population is about 7.5 million people. The population of New York City is about 8.6 million people. Dallas-Fort Worth is about 9,400 square miles. New York City is about 304 square miles, if I remember right. So the population density is much, much higher in New York. So your, your infection rate is going to be much higher. So your, your, your multiplier of the denominator would be much higher. And, and when you get into something like that, I don't, I don't think it's, it's legitimate to extrapolate that. But Dallas-Fort Worth is probably, and then Texas as a whole, is probably a really good indicator of what the average number is that you need to multiply by to get what we're really looking at. And in Texas, when we look at the antibody tests, we have an infection rate statewide of 3%. That sounds really small, especially when they tell you we need 70% for herd immunity or whatever. But we have a, a statewide infection rate of about 3%, 29 million people. It's about 870,000 versus the 55,000 confirmed cases. It's a 16x denominator. So I think you're much better off with something in a range of 16 to 20 times the reported case count and, and that's, that is my estimation. That's where I've broken off. I, the fact of 3% is a fact. And it's, that's probably low because we haven't done enough antibody testing to really do that. But it brings up another thing. This isn't a fact. This is, it's, it's, a fa it's facts and then it's my, my question that goes along with it. So what I've heard from tons of people doing the antibody testing, I've been talking to people that are doing the antibody testing, There's been a huge number of people coming in that describe a condition that they had in the past, many of them in December, even November, that sounds exactly like COVID. If somebody were to present with these symptoms today, go to the hospital and die, but never have been tested, most doctors would sign off on it as a COVID death. Here's, and here's why I know that. I know, or I, why I know the exact way this condition feels. I had it, my wife had it. After Thanksgiving into early December, we had this. We coughed our brains out. The cough was dry and non-productive. Um, after about a week into it, we began to feel as though we had something in, or, in our lungs or on our chest. It was difficult to breathe. We became wheezy. Our oxygen levels went down. It was almost a little scary at times when you were sleeping in bed and you'd wake up and, and have trouble breathing. 
And by laying on your stomach, you would mitigate that. So we spent a lot of time sleeping on our stomach. During that entire time, neither one of us really freaked out. No one had heard the word COVID quite yet, and we got better. I know multiple people who had that illness. I ran a large event around my home right before I got that illness. Many people who came to it report something like that prior to it, and many people who came to it report something like that soon after it. Some people who didn't have it soon after it went home and cohabitated or were around people uh, who were also here that got it right away, and then they got it a little bit later. It, it sounds exactly like a moderate to mild case of COVID-19. Tons of people had that this year. Tons of people have gotten antibody testing, and tons of those people have been told you do not show antibodies for COVID. So one of the things that I would say is, if you were a 90-year-old or an 85-year-old in poor health, They got whatever that was that I and countless other people had. It would very likely kill you. How many? Of, so I'm not making a factual statement. I'm saying it is reasonable to believe that some of these numbers in our deaths of COVID are other respiratory infections that were presumed COVID and just lumped on top of the number because it makes sense to do that for people from financial gain. And it just, I think that could be a logical, rational belief right now if you did not think about the fact that this happened. In other words, it would be an error, but it would be an error that you'd understand why it would be made. Now, when I've put out that I had this this illness, and my wife had this illness, and what it was like, I have, I have about a quarter million people a day listen to the show. I have gotten countless emails. I have no, I mean, seriously, countless. I have no time to count them all of people saying, we had exactly that. We had, so there's something that went around this year that was very COVID-like, that based on all the data we have, wasn't COVID. Is that still with us? Is that some of these infections? Is there other people getting this? And then once the media you know, lathers this up and freaks you out, how many people get that and they have it worse because they're afraid now? Versus the way my wife and I had it, where even for us it was a little scary at times because it was like when you feel that you're having a hard time breathing, there's a there's an innate panic that begins to form. But let's go into some more stuff. I, I want to talk about masks. This is my before I explain what I'm about to explain. This is my position on masks, and I'm talking about not N95 masks that are significantly useful for the prevention of getting COVID. I'm talking about the, the virtue signal wearing masks that they have people all over wearing everywhere they go now. Uh, they're either fabricated masks, they're uh, people making themselves, they're bandanas, they're um, surgical, you know, disposable surgical masks and everything in between like that cloth masks. My belief is they actually can help prevent spread, but they can only do that if spread is likely in the first place. So a symptomatic person in close confines with another person should definitely be wearing a mask. If we are in a confined indoor space in large crowds where we can't stay the hell away from each other for long periods of time, they make sense. But the majority of people and the way they're using them and being mandated to use them is not doing anything. It's not doing anything. And I want to start out with a valid study explained by a very smart doctor that makes the claim that clearly this shows that we should be wearing masks, and clearly it shows they work. What they did is they took hamsters 
and they put masks on a hamster. Nah, they didn't really. I just wanted you to have that image of a little hamster running around with a mask on its face. It's not doable. So they put hamsters in a cage, and they infected them on purpose with COVID. Yeah, this sounds like a good idea. There's no science fiction movies that warn about this. Anyway, I digress. So they infect the little, you know, tailless rats, little furry tailless rats with COVID, and they get them sick. And they put another cage near them, and then they put a fan, and they blow the air from one cage to the other, and then they mask the cage. So they put the six hamsters in the cage, and they put a, a cloth barrier over the end of the cage pointing at the non-sick hamsters, and a, a small number of those hamsters got sick. If I remember right from the video, it was somewhere around 15%. Uh, no, it was 30, 30% got sick. So then they went and they took the cover off the cage and they put it on the other cage. So now it's like you wearing a mask and instead of you wearing a mask to prevent spread, you're wearing that same type of mask to prevent getting the infection. And more of the hamsters got sick. It was like thir so it went from 15% when the sick hamsters were effectively wearing a mask to 33% when the other hamsters were wearing the mask. The non-sick hamsters were wearing a mask. Again, it was a cage mask. When they put the mask, it was, it was 33 and 66, and when they put the mask on both, it dropped to 15%. And the hamsters that got sick got a much more mild case with a lower viral load than the hamsters when they just opened it up. When, it was, when they opened it up, it was 66%. So even when they put sick hamsters and non-sick hamsters right next to each other, For a long period of time with a fan blowing with no protection, even at that point, 30% of the hamsters never got the disease, including the ones that were in the cage with the other ones. Now that's interesting, but let's take it on face value. Hey, that's a big reduction. If everybody wears a mask, we can take spread from 66% to 15%. Well, that makes sense. Here's the problem. That is a study that another group of scientists can do what's called a peer review of and come up with a positive, confirming peer review. They're going to look at the method and say, does this work? They might take their own group of hamsters and replicate the test. And if they get similar data and similar results, they'll say, not only does this look right, when we did it, we got the same results, and now it's peer-reviewed. That's what that means. But the peer review is not going to take into account Does this actually mean what we think that it means? Only was it done the way that it says it was done, and does it prove the thing that it claims it proves? See, that study, and I invite you to watch the video and understand, I respect the doctor that did the video, and I respect the researchers that did the study, and I'm still telling you it doesn't mean that when you walk down the sidewalk past somebody else and you both wear your pretty masks that you're not doing anything less than just virtue signaling. You're not actually preventing spread if both of you don't have symptoms. To do this study and mimic that, you would have to take two cages full of hamsters, sick hamsters and well hamsters, do your little mask swap, no mask, mask on one side, mask on the other side, mask on both sides, and take the cages and put them on a conveyor belt and have them pass each other in casual contact. You could even have your fan if you, that makes you feel better. But you would have to do that in casual contact, and you would have to mimic, well, how many encounters like that does a person have in a day of casual contact walking around on the street or walking through the aisles of a store that has lots of room in it? And then if you wanted to understand, do masks matter when you're walking around the street, you'd have to do your test outside, not in a laboratory. 
Now, I understand that that would not be safe because you'd be blowing hamster COVID around. But that's what you would, if you actually wanted to, to do it, to say, or you'd have to simulate the outdoor environment. So you'd have to put enough UV light and enough air movement and enough air filtration and enough air uptake and out of the space versus a closed space to mimic an outdoor environment. You could put that through biofilters, I guess. And then you would get a real answer to the question, does this matter? You would also have to do it as they did with no protection and compare the two. And what you would find is probably that there's nothing going on there. Because the, the concept of asymptomatic spe- spread has been largely debunked. This is another thing. I have a source for you. The latest data from the National Institute of Health. Again, this is not some guy with a blog on Medium or some guy with a random YouTube channel. Not that those people can't be right. They certainly... I'm not much better. But I'm using source data from... This is, again, the National Institute of Health. Their most recent study on the spread of asymptomatic COVID is the evidence for it is weak. It's weak. But if you read the study and you read the summary of the study which I did, and I have a link so you can do it too, you find the evidence for asymptomatic spread with casual contact is non-existent. There isn't any. There isn't any at all. The study itself doesn't say that, but when you look at the methods that were done, how they made the determination, what the results were, you realize that the concept that then you would translate this to you and I are walking down Main Street We pass at three feet from each other without our magical masks on, and somehow I'm asymptomatic. I have no symptoms, but I happen to kind of clear my throat or something at that point. And because of that, a little misty drop flies through the air and lands on your forehead, crawls through your brain, and gives you COVID. Just as ridiculous. Because the average duration of time for this to transmit from one family member to another family member in the same home with long duration exposure day to day was four days. Yes, human to human community transmission, but it took continued exposure over four days to have any significant transmission of symptoms. Again, this is from the National Institute of Health. This study is just out. It is the most update current information we have. And what it says when you understand the basic common sense behind it. If you are walking around with casual contact, without close confinement, specifically indoors, because we also know the half-life of the virus in the sun is about a minute. About a minute of exposure to the sun and it's dead that it doesn't do anything. So if you have a bunch of people working in a meatpacking plant in humid, cold conditions in close confines with each other, they should be wearing masks. If you have a store that's going to be really crowded, they should probably be wearing masks. If you've opened your restaurant to 50% capacity, it probably makes sense that your entire staff who's there all day long in close connection with each other and interacting with, with customer A, B, C, and D all day long Wear a mask. It's impractical for the person eating the steak you made them to wear a mask while eating the, eating the steak. It doesn't make any sense. So them wearing the mask while they're you know sitting at the table waiting for their steak also makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. You practice sanitation, and the people that are in the close confines of the kitchen with each other, 
and in the, the hallway and in the servers that are standing next to each other talking to each other, planning out where the next person... Okay, that makes sense. That make, and if you want to wear a mask, go ahead. But in many ways, I think that it's a false sense of security. And it's a false sense of virtue that somehow you, a perfectly healthy person who has no symptoms at all, is going to protect grandma by wearing your mask. Now, if you're going to go see grandma and be in the same room with her and you want to do it as a precaution, I totally endorse that. But walking around, a healthy person walking around with a mask makes no sense. Makes no sense. Outdoors, it makes no sense. It doesn't make, it, it, it just, it doesn't pass the smell test. Next, I want to talk about Swedish's death, death rate. Swedish's death rate is high. Okay, listen, you can't say it's something when we know what it is because we have the data. We know what it is. And their, their peak day for their highest number of deaths was April 21st. Do you know who else's had, who, what other country had their peak day of death on April 21st? The United States of America. We have the same exact day that our death total, not our rate, our death total, total number of people to die, died on the same day, April 21st. It's an interesting coincidence. There's an interesting thing, though, about Sweden. Number one, their death rate has plummeted far faster than it has in the United States, meaning that even though right now deaths per million, yes, the United States is doing a little better than Sweden, with no adjustments at that point. We will probably finish ahead of them. We will probably finish with a higher deaths per million because their deaths have dwindled to almost nothing. Their, their curve has gone up abruptly and down abruptly. Ours was flattened, so it's lasting longer in a nation with 330 million people. We will, based on projections, end up with a death rate a little higher than Sweden's. That's a rate, not total, per million. So There's almost no difference. In spite of the fact that Sweden did not close their schools, they did close their universities, but they didn't close their schools. They didn't close their restaurants. They, they prohibited large gatherings. I believe 50 people or, 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 or more is not permitted. They closed bar top service. So if you go to a restaurant and they have a bar, you can sit at a table by yourself or with your family and the people that came with you, but you're separated from other people and you're not sitting at a bar arm to arm. So they don't have their nightclubs going or anything. But overall, life in Sweden is not much different than it's been. And there's, a, there's an aggravating circumstance. There's a big mistake Sweden made. They didn't close their elder care facilities, their memory care facilities, their nursing homes and all, to visitation. The second they did that, you can look, two weeks out, the death rate plummets. And the vast majority of their deaths were in those facilities, as many of ours were. For a variety of reasons. One, no matter what you do, some of it's going to get in there anyway. And keeping me locked in my house won't stop that from happening. Because the nurse that takes care of those people goes in and out. Now we have enough tests where we can test everybody once a week. That's what they're doing. It's pushing the death rate even lower. Because we can catch it before the person gets in there. And I know what you're thinking. But Jack, you said asymptomatic spread is a myth. No. I said casual contact, asymptomatic spread is highly unlikely. It's not worth worrying about. When you have a person who's asymptomatic progressing to symptomatic in an elder care facility with people that are immunocompromised with daily contact, that's something different. And it only takes one of those people in that home to get it and start spreading it for it to take off and be a cancer inside that facility. But we can minimize that 
through screening and restriction of who can go in and out of there. And certainly by not sending people who we know have it back to them like they did in New Jersey and New York. And that, that is on the governors of those two states. They, can't, they want to pass the buck, but they can't. They made that decision. And they say, well, it was CDC guidance from it's Trump's fault. They didn't do a lot of things Trump said to do. So you can't pick and choose what you do and then say it's Trump's fault when you do the thing that maybe Trump sort of, kind of, possibly, no. Because Trump had nothing to do with that. And that's not a defense of Trump. That's a defense of fact. I am big on fact. I'll throw Trump right under the bus with Como, the first instance where it makes sense to do it and the facts line up. I have no allegiance to any politician of any party if you're new here. None. So Sweden's death rate plummeted as soon as they corrected the error. And if we back those deaths out at even, let's say, 70%, because you wouldn't be able to prevent all of them, all of a sudden Sweden's death rate is better than the United States, and it's not far off of its two neighbors, uh, Finland and um, Norway. When we adjust again, we have to adjust again for the fact that they have 50% the population density of their neighbor in between them. So when we factor all that in, it, they look remarkably like us. They look remarkably like their neighbors, which is actually better than us. And so what we've seen is that the, that the when we try to make a case, X did it right, Y did it wrong, it's almost pointless because we can look at tons of people that did the same thing with vastly different apparent results, but what it always comes back to is population density and how much risk the most vulnerable were put to. That, that, I mean, that's the only commonality. You look at Texas and New York, we have a similar population. We took a different approach to protecting the elderly, and we have a lower population density in Texas. Texas looks great, New York is a disaster. It's not all in Como. I think thousands of deaths that didn't have to happen are, but the total footprint is because New York City has 8 million people in 300 square miles, and it has a subway system. Damp, dark, close confines, perfect storm. And think about every place in the United States that has a massive outbreak relative to the population. New York, New Jersey, Chicago, Detroit, Washington, D.C. I'm not saying that it's 100%, but I am saying all five of those places have subway systems. And people rely a huge degree on mass transit in all five of those places. I think that correlation bears at least looking at. The latest study from Spain shows that more people who stayed home by percentage got COVID than those who were essential workers and didn't stay home. So we already had that come out a month ago with Como, who said most of the new cases in New York City were people who stayed home. Spain looked at it a little bit differently from a, a purely a percentage of the total. So what percentage of this group versus what percentage of that group? And it was clear by about a 20, it's like 1% more, but that's a 25% margin. 25% more of the group of people who stayed home got COVID than those that went out. Why would that be the case? Because it's a disease that primarily transfers human to human with direct, long-term, prolonged uh, personal contact, i.e. multi-number of days. And it transmits itself much more readily when it's indoors and the contact is close and prolonged. So the people that leave the house every day break their contacts with their fellow family members 
They get out and about. They get out in the sun. They get vitamin D. Their immune systems remain strong. And if they get COVID, they're more likely to end up with a mild case of it and quickly kick it. That's why. Now, that's my opinion, but the, cl but the, the claim I'm making that Spain clearly can demonstrate that more people out of the group of stay-homers got this than people that were go-outers is not debatable. It's not debatable. It is a solid record of what happened. It's very hard to figure out what's going to happen. It's pretty easy to figure out what did happen because we have the people, we can look at them, and we get the numbers. The latest data from Singapore. This is another. This is not a debate. This is, this is not proven, but it is... I would say this study is credible to the point where we can act as if it's proven. Because until somebody replicates it, it's not 100% confirmed. But when I look at this study, a person, once they are infected with COVID, at 11 days from infection, is no longer contagious. Symptomatic or not. Symptomatic. At that point, they stop shedding virus. And this seems to be incredibly valid. And if it's off and we say it's 15 days, it's still a game changer in how we worry about this and how we handle this. So that means a person, we know they have COVID, we can project the point at which they're no longer contagious even if they're not exactly perfectly well and even if they still test positive for the virus. Now, what that means is we have millions of people because remember, in five days in the United States... All of those days of which are more than 11 days ago, over 1.2 million people got COVID as new cases versus the 117,000 we say did. Those are all people that can't transmit the virus anymore. They can't get sick anymore. And we need to think about that when we're deciding whether or not we continue to destroy our economy. That's all that I'm saying. Um, again, you can check this for yourself. Next up, there's been so much arguing over hydroxychloroquine because Trump said it works. I, I promise you folks, this is an emotional argument. All of the arguments against hydroxychloroquine are emo they're emotional. They're not logical and they're certainly not scientific and they're not based on fact. You have a medication that's been in use for decades. You have a medication that Department of Veteran Affairs uses 64,000 doses of a day. Not for COVID. And not for people to not get malaria in the field. This is not the army. This is veterans affairs. This is people are done with their service, came home, and they're in the VA system. They're using it for things like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis. Lupus is an, immuno, uh, an immune disease, a disease of the immune system. You're not exactly the most, health, most healthy person in the world if you have lupus, nor are you if you have rheumatoid arthritis. These people are taking this medication in the same dose that is being used for COVID treatment for their entire lives versus for five to ten days. And we don't have them dropping over like flies. Well, the whole thing about it being dangerous is nonsense. It's total nonsense. Now, are there people that it's dangerous for? There are people that it's dangerous for them to take aspirin. So yes, of course. It doesn't mean it's dangerous. It doesn't make any... There's no scientific argument here. None. And if you push a doctor on this, they will have to concede that that is the truth. Now, does it work or not? Well, that's a totally different argument. And my assertion from the beginning, and I was on this before 
Trump said a word about it. I was on this. That chloroquine. We have known that chloroquine treats coronaviruses since the early 2000s. There's an old TV show that came out, I believe, in 2003 of a virus like this breaking out. And the end of that story was it was cured by hydroxychloroquine. And the reason they came up, they didn't just randomly take the, the physician's de desk reference, right, the PDR, and like flip through it and stick their finger on a page and say, oh, we'll say it's... No, they, they did that because it was already known. It was already had already been used. And the doctors that picked up on that and started treating patients for this used it in conjunction with zinc, and they used it early. So what are all the studies on? People that are near death in a hospital without zinc when their lungs are already ravaged and they already have blood clots and other problems. And yes, at that point, it may very well be the case that some patients have a higher likelihood of death if they take hydroxychloroquine because they already have blood clots. So the, pro the, the concept that they might have uh, throw, throw a clot and have a, a stroke or a heart attack is even higher when you add hydroxychloroquine to that because it can cause arrhythmia. Okay, So there are patients you should never give it to. Doctors can figure that out. But when we decided, the bureaucrats decided, that ran all this, that it should only be used in a hospital in ICU environments, it was doomed to fail in those tests. This is another example of a flawed peer review. Because the peers that review that study will only say, did you do what you say you did, and what are you claiming? They're not claiming. See, the studies that say it didn't work are not saying it doesn't work. They're saying it doesn't work for advanced stage patients in an ICU setting given it this way, in the absence of these other treatments. That's what the study actually says. So the peer review that confirms that, confirms that. It doesn't confirm whether if we take patients when they first present with symptoms, give them a dose of this along with zinc, like every doctor who said it worked was doing. It doesn't make any claims about that whatsoever, but it fits an emotional narrative. Well, the latest on hydroxychloroquine, which I believe Trump knew, Because it made no sense to me when he told the media, well, I'm taking it. I started taking it about a week ago because I think it's a good thing because I think it might prevent things. Believe it or not, whether you hate him or love him, the President of the United States, no matter who he is, whether it's Trump now, Obama, Bush, Clinton, they know things before you do. Presidents of countries know things before you do. Well, what came out a week after he came out and said this? India has now said they're ramping up the use of hydroxychloroquine as a preventative, as a prophylactic for frontline workers. That it, and the reason they're doing it is three separate independent studies have shown that it is effective when used that way as a preventative. So preventative, check, which makes it highly likely that it's useful early on with zinc, which shuts down viral replication of RNA replicating viruses, which all coronaviruses are. Old science. 20-year-old science, again, 20-plus-year-old science says you take hydroxychloroquine, you take zinc, you give it to a patient who is either exposed to or may be exposed to an RNA-replicating virus, it shuts down viral replication. But we're having an emotional argument, about it, which, which means we could be taking our most at-risk people. We can't make enough hydroxychloroquine yet to give it to everybody. And we shouldn't give it to everybody because you have to have a consultation with your doctor to make sure it's safe for you. But probably 95% can take it safely. And the, the dose prophylactic, uh, for, uh, prophylactic for protective use, 
Okay, for some reason I got tongue-tied, I could say that. The dose of that is half the therapeutic dose, so it's less risky. I took this medication for six consecutive months when I was a 19-year-old kid deployed to Honduras for the prevention of malaria. And it didn't cause psychosis or whatever bullshit they come up with. 600-plus men were with me, and we, we took this medication for six months consecutively. And it was quite safe. And it's been quite safe. But it would be a game-changer if we could take the most at-risk people who can safely take it and start providing it to them. And it's been used proactively in a nursing home in Texas where COVID got inside the nursing home and they figured, what the hell? They gave it to everybody and they stopped the outbreak inside a nursing home. Again, the studies out of India are not rigged by Trump, right? It's not like India is, you know, in, I've, not, I've heard a lot of Trump conspiracy, but he's in bed with India is not one of them. Not yet, anyway. Um, I don't think those doctors over there did this to make Trump look good uh, or to, to pu push any narrative other than, hey, did this thing work? So when they used it that way, it worked that way. And I completely agree that it probably doesn't work well for people once they're on a respirator in an ICU and you're crushing it up and putting it down a feeding tube. It probably doesn't. See, that's, that's how these, these studies can be completely flawed. The right medication for the right patient at the right time. Fauci said that himself. And then they turned around and did exactly the opposite of the timing, the patient, the profile, and with the right additional aids. Here's data from a study saying, yes, it works. In fact, three studies. Um, next. One of the reasons I say we have to stop this, even if it does present some, rep, reduce some deaths, is if the, if, the, if the cure is worse than the disease, we don't take the cure. And one of the things I've said since the beginning is that you will see a surge in suicides. That this type of thing, locking people in their homes endlessly, will create a surge in suicides. The dam's broken. The data's starting to come out. Doctors are starting to speak out. Reporters are even starting to acknowledge it. And it just started Friday. And I saw... The media, I saw a report come out, and then another one, and another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. Like in rapid-fire secession. Mostly California. Soon then, hey, this is what's going on in Tennessee. We have a skyrocketing suicide rate. The, the, the one I picked for the source that you can see in today's show notes says that in California that they have had, in the last two months, a year's worth of suicide attempts. In 60 days, they've had as many people attempt to take their life as they typically have in a year. That's a 6x increase in attempted suicides. 6x. We're not even beginning to see the effects yet. There are so many people that have lost everything because of this. And you can look at a person today and think they're okay. And a week from now, they hang themselves with their belt. Most of us have known somebody in our lives, either directly or indirectly, that that happened to. If you talked to them a week before, you didn't see it. Sometimes there's signs, sometimes there's not. But whatever it is, eats them from the inside. Losing a business that you put eight years into. You don't know that the person that's eventually going to commit suicide because of that is going to do it tomorrow. They might not do it until next month. 
But now that this data is coming out, look for it to just explode and look to start seeing it from every state. And I guarantee you it will be worse in the states that lock down the hardest. And it will be worse in the states where they keep extending these things, irrationally extending these things until July at this point. Because if you're in Texas, you're like, okay, well, they're starting to open things. I can go out now. I can. You start to have hope. When you think, when you see everybody else starting to have hope, and you're on the edge psychologically anyway, and then your governor says, well, maybe by July 15th. It is soul-crushing. So that's another reason here that we have to start looking at a different way to do this, because between the economic repercussions and the physical health and psychological repercussions, we're doing more harm than good. There's no evidence that the lockdowns worked. There isn't any. The latest study out by that is by J.P. Morgan Chase, of all people. And they looked at the economy and said, here's what happened, and here's what's coming. And you might not think we're scientists, but we employ some pretty good scientists and mathematicians, and you can bet these are the economic repercussions we're going to have right now, and here's how much worse they get if we keep doing this. And then we had our same mathematicians look at the progression of the pandemic across the globe, and here, and, and I know it's J.P. Morgan. You want to attack them because they're bad people. They're the bank. They're financial, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's ad hominem. That's a fallacy. Go look at their report. Go look at their data. Go look at how they, they compiled this. Go look at the graphs that they put together. And go check the data that makes the graph and make sure the data is right. I already did, so I know it is. But you do it too. And what you can see is the pandemic largely did what it would do no matter what the country or the place that it happened in did in response to it. It largely was unaltered. The, the number one factor, again, is population density. In high-density centers, there was lots of cases. In low-density centers, there was relatively few cases. If you locked it down, that's what you got. If you didn't lock it down, that's what you got. And disproportionately, the elderly were the hardest hit, we know that. Let's protect those people as best we can and accept that we're still not going to make it not happen at all. But again, you can. I have that. So I want to give you a couple analogies here toward the end that I came up with over the weekend that fit with all these facts. First of all, I consider wearing a mask for a healthy person with no symptoms during casual contact encounters with strangers to make about as much sense as building your own condom out of paper towels. I want you to think about that. You, you're going to make your own condom out of paper towel and not have sex. <laughs> you know, even if you did have sex, a paper towel condom is a perfect analogy for wearing a paper or cloth mask for COVID. First of all, it's really not very effective. It might help. And we'd all agree, it might, it might slow the spread or the impregnation, but it's still very flawed. And it ruins the experience. I mean, that's that's really... To me, that's, that's about what you've done now. But I also feel that it's more like wearing a mask walking down the street is like taking a condom, a real condom now, taking a thumbtack and making five holes in it so it has flaws. Because a surgical mask is not an N95 mask. It just isn't. And we know that. And it's not as effective. So we have to first knock it down. Then, you know, assuming you're a guy, you, you put this condom on, you put your pants on, and you walk around, 
And you're wearing that condom so that when you walk past a woman at 7-Eleven, you don't get her pregnant. That's, that's what we're doing here. That's, that is the best way that I can explain what we're doing with these masks. When do I wear a mask? I wear a mask when I am in a situation where I'm in an enclosed area with lots of people and I can't keep my distance from them. And I think that situation warrants it for whatever limited protection it gives me. Because even the paper, towel, condom might help. Okay, And I wear a mask when the the facility, the private business, the government agency, whatever, that I am forced to interact with mandates it. Because if, if I go to go to a store and it says you have to wear a mask to come in here, I'm going to make one of two decisions. I'm going to wear some sort of a mask to appease them, or I'm going to go to a different store. I'm not going to go in that store and say you have no right to do this to me. It's a private business. The people that run that business have a right to run it any way that they want. It might be a mistake, but they have a right to do it. That's the real libertarian in me. That's your store. You set the rules. Hey, you say I got to do this, I'm going to do this. If I want to be in a store for a long period of time in tight confines with lots of people, I'll wear one of our N95 masks because if I'm going to wear a mask, I might as well wear something that protects me. And I don't know whether the people around me are healthy or not. I have no idea if that person is somebody that's sick, has a test pending, but feels they have to go to work and stopped at the store on the way home. So I'll, I'll wear it there. Sure. But when I'm walking down the street, when I'm walking through the parking lot, when I'm driving my car, if I'm taking a walk in the woods, some of the states open their state parks and say when you're hiking you have to wear a mask. This is retarded. It doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry, it doesn't. Again, now you're wearing a condom to prevent getting a woman pregnant when you walk past her. It isn't that condoms don't function, and even a condom with some holes in it is probably more effective than nothing. But unless you're having sex, it doesn't do anything. Unless you're symptomatic at close proximity to somebody for extended durations, it doesn't do anything because it's not warranted. Here's my other analogy this weekend. The chestnut blight of the 1910s. What? What? Everybody's comparing this to the flu, the, the, the Spanish flu. I, I, I find it ironic that people are now using the Spanish flu epidemic to make their case for COVID when I listen to them for three months scream, it's not the flu, stop saying it's the flu. But it's the flu when, anyway, I digress. No, the uh, the chestnut blight. This is a story that many people don't really know anymore. When I grew up, all the adults knew about the chestnut blight because many of them lived through it. So what happened was they brought Chinese chestnuts into the United States because, hey, seemed like a good idea. Gee, there's an analogy there. It came from came from China. Again, and when you start looking at pandemics of the past, especially flu, almost all of them did come from China, including the Spanish influenza outbreak that we're talking about interlaced here. And you can learn about that in the latest edition of Backwoods Home Magazine. There's a a great story on pandemics of the past in there. Anyway, uh, so the Chinese chestnuts came in. They were carriers of blight. The Chinese chestnut is resistant to blight, so it can carry it, but it doesn't get sick. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? They spread to the... American chestnut trees, which were all over the country, from Florida to Washington State and California to Maine, billions of them, gorgeous trees. And the timber companies had wanted to cut them all down for a a very long time, but the people of this country relied on them. They were a source of free food everywhere in this country. There were giant chestnut trees that three men couldn't get their arms around combined. If they made a circle, they couldn't get around them, hundreds of feet tall. The chestnuts would fall if you were in the forest when they were falling. It hurt. It was like getting hailed on. 
farmers would feed them to their pigs and their chickens and other livestock. They would literally take a horse and buggy cart into the woods with a number 10 flat coal shovel. If you've ever seen one, it's a very big shovel. And in a couple, a couple minutes, they could, they could fill a cart with tons of chestnuts. That's how many there were when the mass would fall. And so they were protected. People would not let the timber companies overcut the, the chestnut trees because they relied on them. The blight came. And they decided the only way to save them was to cut them all down. We had to stop the blight by cutting them all down. So they clear-cut the chestnuts from one end of the country to the other. And today there's stumps that grow back little bits that get blight, fail, and all the ones they plant tend to fail. And we don't have any American chestnuts. We have hybrid American-Chinese chestnuts. And we have one little pocket of chestnuts that have been protected from the blight and a little isolated area in Washington and Oregon. And nobody's allowed to bring anything approaching a new chestnut into there to protect it. That's a quarantine. But what the original thing was, was we burned it all down to save it. Now, what does that have to do with how we handled COVID? Well, historically, when a pandemic hit, from the time that humans have actually understood how diseases spread, which is only a few hundred years... What we would do is take sick people and isolate them and keep them away from healthy people to slow spread. That's a quarantine. That's what a quarantine is. People that are sick or known to be exposed are isolated from those who are healthy and not known to be exposed. What we did was we took the approach we did to the chestnut trees. We locked up the sick and the healthy alike. Now, the thing about this is the benefit of cutting down the chestnut trees was for a very few people in a very big industry, the timber industry. They are the ones that benefited. And the people that were victimized were convinced by propaganda and industry and government that, hey, this is for your best interest. Because the reality is if we didn't cut the chestnut trees down, some of them probably would have survived and had the genetics to get through the blight then we could have taken those trees and used them to make new trees, and we could have reestablished the species. We didn't save a single chestnut tree by killing them all. Got it? But yet the people clamored. The people who had protected the trees just told anybody that said, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this. Shut up. It's the only way. How does that compare to COVID? The people that profited from this, a very small number of people, are profiting and will continue to profit. And the people that have forced that will on others at the behest of propaganda from industry and government are the ones most harmed by it. This proves that we, are, we do not study history so that we won't make the mistakes of the past. That's, that's a lie we tell children to get them to do their homework. The real reason we, we, we study history is because the mistakes of the past will be repeated and it's best to know what's coming so you can be prepared for it. Because this is, this is the exact same pattern. Let's, let's throw everything in under the name of protection of those who are harmed and actually harm everybody instead of just protecting the one group of actual harmed to the profit and benefit of a few. And then let's make the population police itself through public shaming uh, and, and, and screaming to shut up. It's exactly what happened in both scenarios. So... If all this stuff that I'm saying doesn't work, doesn't work, what does work? Again, I think masks work where the potential for spread is high. That's where they make sense, and that's where they should be used. 
And if I'm going to have close, long-term proximity to somebody, I want them wearing a mask and I'll wear a mask. If I go to the barber, I think that makes sense right now to wear a mask at the barber. If I'm walking down the street to the barber shop, I'll put my mask on when it's time to go in the barber shop because that person's going to be close to my face, face-to-face with me for a long period of time. A dentist would be another example. Of course, i got to open my mouth. I can't wear a mask, but maybe they should. Do you see how that works? A meatpacking plant, close to each other, high-density population, cold, moist environment. It's nirvana for coronavirus. Coronaviruses love cold, damp situations. They love it. They love being inside a subway tunnel or a meatpacking plant. But by the way, in meatpacking plants, they wear masks. They wear face coverings. <laughs> and we still have had breakouts there. But we haven't had breakouts in Walmarts. Yes, a few Walmart employees got COVID. Doesn't even mean they got it at Walmart. But by and large, most of the people who work for Walmart and you know Kroger and, and what have you, uh, Albertsons, most of the people that work for Amazon, especially that are outside delivering packages, they didn't get COVID. And they didn't spread it to people they brought the packages to. Yes, there's one or two here. There's one or two of somebody everywhere out of every group. There's no, there's no big grouping. There's no big pattern. Because when you're close together for a long time, you spread this virus, and when you're not, you don't. And when you're symptomatic, you spread this virus, and when you're asymptomatic, you tend not to. You take asymptomatic, you put it with somebody who's more susceptible, you do it for a long term. Yes, it can happen. But casual contact, it's highly unlikely. You're more likely to win a million dollars on a scratcher for the lottery. The data says that. Good nutrition. Follow my plan for good nutrition. I'll put a link in the notes to a previous episode where I have all of the product and all of the, the data that goes along with it, all of the studies. But it's basically a good multivitamin. Beef up on your big vitamins, your big, you know, your big A, B, C, D, E. Real easy to remember. Include Q-certain in what you do. This is a proven zinc ionophore. It includes supplemental zinc and supplemental selenium. Also includes some green tea, but a very small amount of it that aids with the ionophore process of getting the zinc into the cells. An infectious disease specialist with 30 years of experience in infectious disease looked at my data, looked at what I suggested, and his response was, I'm going to go buy this for my family. So I'm not a doctor, but when a doctor looked at it, they said, this tracks, this seems like it works, I'm going to do this. And if you don't exceed safe dosages of all those things, you don't overdose, it can't hurt you. And it can't help you. And I want to, one more time, I want to talk about flawed studies. So they'll do a study. They give everybody in the control group, or the experimental group, 500 milligrams of vitamin C. And everybody in the experimental group, they don't give them extra vitamin C, but they make sure nobody's deficient in vitamin C. And then they say, how were these two groups of people affected by this year's cold or flu season? And they'll say, well, you know, there seemed to be a very slight reduction in the number of cases in those that took supplemental C. And there seems to be a, a slight uh, reduction in duration. But basically, if you're not already vitamin C deficient, taking vitamin C really doesn't do anything. Okay, why 500 milligrams? Why not 2,000 milligrams? Why not 2,000 milligrams three times a day? What's the therapeutic dose? Nobody's done a study like that. Were these patients given just vitamin C? Or were they given an entire regiment of vitamins? So is it the C or is it the C plus selenium? Is the C plus selenium and zinc and some sort of ionophore to get the zinc into the cells? What does a holistic approach look like? 
Nobody's done that study, and they're not going to. They have no vested interest in doing that study. But people who have a good, solid nutritional profile, and RDA ain't it. Recommended daily allowance means if you have at least this much of all this stuff, you won't get sick from not having it. It doesn't mean that your immune system is ready to defend itself against a novel virus like a new coronavirus. So follow my plan if you think it makes sense. Again, I'll, I won't go into it deep, but just I'll put a link in it today. Stay away from crowds. I mean, that's the smartest thing you can do right now is stay away from crowds. If you're going to get it, you're probably still going to get it. But if you can do something simple, then it makes sense to do it, especially indoors. I think the spread of this illness outside in the sunshine is highly unlikely. I mean, if you're, if you're swapping spit with somebody that has it, that's different. But, I mean, casual contact outdoors. But, yeah, high crowded situations indoors, long duration is the problem. So avoid that. Accept that life carries risk and get on with getting on. Stuff like this comes around all the time. The number one cause of death in the elderly is respiratory infection, parentheses, other, close parentheses. That is the number one cause of death in the elderly day-to-day, year-to-year, over and over again. They get it, a respiratory infection. We test them for influenza A and B. They come up negative. They don't know what it is because there's not a COVID outbreak, so they don't test them for that. And they don't presume it to be that, and they call it respiratory infection other. That one I don't have a link for, but look it up if you doubt me. Use Google. Go try to prove that wrong. Try to prove that it's not the number one cause of death in the elderly that is respiratory infection other. And it's generally pneumonia caused by respiratory infection, parentheses, other, close, parentheses. So... This idea that we're going to protect people and one death is too much is just, if it wasn't this, it would be the damn thing that my wife and I and thousands of other people got this year that did kill a bunch of older people when we weren't worried about COVID, so we didn't notice it. That doesn't mean there wasn't a huge spike in this type of death in New York City or in eastern New Jersey or in Massachusetts or in Detroit, Michigan. I get that this is different, but it's not that drastically different and this idea that one death is too many then life's then life's not livable life's not livable because somebody dies of something every day in large numbers there is there is no comparison to how many people will die this year from complications related to type 2 diabetes far more people will die from that this year than covid far more And that is 100% correctable with diet and lifestyle. And we do not ban, you know, Twinkies and Ho-Hos. It would save more lives. More people will die this year because of abuse of alcohol. We're not going to ban alcohol. It doesn't make any sense. It would do, the, the, the argument against it would be, well, it would save some lives, but it'll do more harm than good. It'll cost more lives in the long run. There'll be a black market. It won't be safe. We already tried that. It didn't work. Prohibition was a bad idea. And that would be a very sane argument. Apply the same logic to this. Destroying the entire Western economy to maybe save 10,000 lives out of the 50,000 or 100,000 that we're going to lose. And realize those numbers are inflated. Again, governments have been caught red-handed inflating those numbers, and they've gotten away with it blatantly 
changing death certificates. You're, I'm talking, I, I want you to really understand this. I'm talking a medical doctor was taking care of a patient. The patient died in the care of that doctor. That doctor said, time of death, 2.49 p.m., Tuesday, May 26th, cause of death, filled in a blank, signed off on it. The doctor, who went to four years of college, four years of uh, medical school, went through a year of internship, multiple three years minimum of residency. The doctor, who did all that, who we trust, who wears the white coat and has the stethoscope, who risks his life in the ER because of spread of infection or in the ICU. That doctor said, this patient died of this cause, and a bureaucrat somewhere said, change it. And they did. And they got away with it. So we can't even trust that number. I'm not saying it's not a big number. I'm saying it's not as big as the number you're being given. And that in the end, life carries risks. Obesity will kill more people in 2020 than COVID. Prove me wrong if you can. And most of you, even if you don't like that, even if it triggers you a little bit, you know I'm right. That's why it triggers you. Generally, if you're triggered by something, it's because it's true. Protect the most at risk the best we can. That's it. That's all we can do. There's no more. We can't keep doing this. We can't keep doing this. And I stayed open to being wrong through this whole thing. I, I am in the position I started with now. I've moved through a wave of things throughout it because I've stayed open to things. When projections came out saying 2 million people could die, I doubted it. But I also took it seriously, and I watched it, and I watched the data come in, and I said, does the result match the projection? And the answer was no. And when people said, but if we didn't do the lockdown, it would have happened. I'm like, the same people that said that said we were going to lose a quarter million people with the lockdown. They were wrong about that. Stop listening to people who have been wrong about everything they've said. And now we have enough time has gone by that we have numbers We have real numbers. We know things. We don't think things. We know things. Now let's take what we know and adjust what we think and form a new plan. Because the old plan sucked. The old plan was wrong. The old plan was a mistake. And expect your politicians to not be willing to admit that because it's political suicide. Expect the people in industries that are profiting from this, that are going to make billions I have a fr had a friend who was killed over about $500. And some of you probably know people who were killed over less. If someone will kill someone over $500, bucks, someone will kill a lot of people for $50 billion. There are billions to be made on this thing. This vaccine that everybody's so... We have to wait for a vaccine, the vaccine, the vaccine. There has never been a successful development of a corona vaccine in human history. I'm not saying it's not doable. I think it is. But we've never done one. And the reason we've never done one is they always burn themselves out. They always burn themselves out faster than vaccine development can be done. And what's going to happen? I, I'm in my opinion world right now. But this is my opinion of what's going to happen. There will be some sort of resurgence of this thing in the fall. They will fast track some vaccine that they'll have out in December, January, February-ish. By then, the death rate, the everything about that second wave will already be, just be in an immense downslide. It will almost be over on its own. 
They'll give people the vaccine at the end before the vaccine even has time to take effect because it will take time to develop immunity for people. It will be largely gone to history. They'll say the vaccine saved everybody and you need it every year with booster shots. And if you don't think people will lie about that knowingly to enrich themselves with tens of billions or hundreds of billions of dollars, you are just a poor judge of human character. That's what, and I'm not, I'm not one of these conspiracy theories. They're going to inject you. There's going to be a microchip in it so they can track you, and this is a trick to do that. If they were going to do that, they would just put it in the vaccine that people take every year anyway. They would have already done it. That's just stupid. That's tin hat nonsense. But the concept that they'll do this to make billions, and they're willing to give you a shot that they believe is mostly safe, that's not necessary so that they can make billions, that's not hard to believe. That's not a conspiracy That's, that's corporate history. Corporations have histories of doing this type of thing. That's what's going to happen. And my opinion is, I'm not getting no, no vaccine for this thing. Now, my, my real answer to that is, you know, would you? Well, it depends. If I end up being wrong, if there's a huge second wave, people start dying left and right, and it seems like the only hope, and it seems like it works, maybe I'll reconsider my opinion. Because I believe somebody that will never reconsider their opinion based on new facts is someone not worth listening to. Well, the reason I'm telling you not to listen to all these supposed experts and all these bureaucrats is there is a mountain of evidence for the case I gave you today. And there is dwindling to no evidence for their original assertions. And, there, and there's little to no evidence for their initial their, their decisions and their continued policies. There's no evidence there. And they're unwilling. They're unwilling to look at this new evidence. And when you point to new evidence, they silence you now. They take your channel off of YouTube. They shut you down. They block you. You don't block people in the world of science. You counter their arguments with logic and reason and fact. And all I've given you today is logic, reason, and fact. And then I've said, based on this, here's my opinion. So if somebody turns you on to this today and you liked it, consider coming back. We don't generally do this type of show where we talk mostly about the problem. We're very solutions-oriented. I've done over 1,200 episodes now. I'm sorry, 2,600 episodes now of this show. We've been doing it for 12 years. We have a quarter million people a day tune in. And we talk mostly about solutions, and tomorrow we'll be back on track with that. But I just felt this had to be done today. Like, I needed, I needed to do this episode, guys, gals that have been with me a long time. I needed to do this today as much for you as I did for me. You needed to know this, and I needed to be able to say, I am taking everything that I know, everything that I've learned, everything that I've gathered, all the research that I've done, all the track. I track data on numbers every day in my own models. I take this very seriously. And at this point, so much had come to a head, I needed to drop it all on you. So I hope you enjoyed today's show, and I hope it makes you think about how manipulated you've been, how lied to you've been. And you notice I'm not one of these people saying, oh, masks don't do anything at all. I'm saying masks in this scenario are useless. In this scenario, they have some limited effectiveness, so maybe they're worth doing. So that's a reasoned approach. If you don't wear a mask everywhere, you're going to kill grandma. Not a reasoned approach, right? Masks don't work at all. No common sense, not reasonable approach. You have to please start listening to people that actually take time to deeply consider these things and look at all of the evidence and draw conclusions from that evidence. But again today, 
We have at least 10 times the number of cases, according to IHME, that have been reported. That cuts everything down to 10% of its numbers, and that means we've been irrational. That's fact. And, that, and, and my opinion is that's conservative because Texas alone is 16 times. Based on antibody tests on the official Texas website, you can look up. We can, I have clearly demonstrated to you, you can have a peer-reviewed study. The study was done exactly the way it was supposed to. It. The, the results are actually what they say they are, but they are not germane to the argument being made. Latest evidence from NIH, National Institute of Health, for asymptomatic spread is weak and for it through casual contact is non-existent. And I want you to think about this. If casual contact with asymptomatic people was capable of spreading COVID, the infection rate in this country would probably be about 80% by now. If, if walking past somebody that was asymptomatic who had COVID could spread COVID one in 50 times that that happened, you'd have 150 million cases of it by now. And you don't. It's illogical. It's illogical that it, it's possible. At one in 50, one in 100 you have to be at something like one in a thousand or higher for the number to even remotely work. That's fact. Sweden was supposed to have this giant cloud of death. IMHE held on to their dream of Sweden crashing and burning and millions dying. They held on to it like a loving child for six weeks after it was evident that it wasn't coming, and they finally changed it. They apologized for nothing. They said nothing publicly. They just adjusted the projection and pretended it never happened. Sweden had their death peak the same day we did. That's a fact. The latest study from Spain shows that more people that stayed home got COVID than the number, the same relative number to the people that went out. You're more likely to get it by staying home. That's, that's a fact. Singapore's new study proves, to I'd say 99% certainty, that after 11 days, it's not contagious anymore. Three separate independent studies in India, three separate independent studies, good studies, show that hydroxychloroquine does work as a preventative for COVID. And the science behind that is more than 20 years old. That is fact. There's no way around it. There is a giant surge in suicides. People are killing themselves because of these lockdowns. There is no debate about that. The economy is destroyed. We're on the edge of a depression. That is not debatable. There's no evidence the lockdowns worked. There's no evidence they worked. There's opinion, there's hyperbole, there's conjecture, but you can't show, no, because no one's shown it. If there was conclusive evidence, it'd be on your TV every day, instead of opinions about it, instead of graphs that don't mean anything. I was in sales and marketing for 20 years. You give me an Excel spreadsheet, I can, and then you tell me what, you give me the data, you, and let me put it in Excel, and you tell me what you want my case to be. And I will manipulate that data, I will make any case you want. I can take the same data and say things are good or bad. However you want it done. It's not hard. Data can be manipulated. Actual results are what they are. They say what it says and they don't say what they don't say. Again, I think a mask for a person walking down the street, with casual contact, makes about as much sense as a paper towel condom when you're not even having sex. You can be angry with me for that, but... I haven't seen any compelling data otherwise. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up real quick here. I want to remind you guys you can help support the show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you, if you go there, 
You can see all the stuff I've reviewed. Today's item of the day is GS Plant Foods Liquid Kelp Fertilizer. Um, this is incredibly useful for getting the micronutrients to your plants. And this is about the time. Tell me if this is you. You've put all your plants in the garden. They're doing pretty good. But you're starting to see little bitty things. You're starting to see a little bitty thing. And a little bit yellow on that leaf. That one's a little wrinkly. Usually those are micronutrient deficiencies. Because most of you are using a good organic fertilizer, or maybe you're even using a conventional fertilizer if you're still in that school of thought. And so nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, that's happening. It's the micronutrient deficiencies, your calcium, the manganese, etc. All those micronutrients are in the wonderful plant that comes from the ocean called kelp. This stuff is very affordable. A 16-ounce bottle is about 15 bucks, but it makes 32 gallons. 32 gallons. It's cheap, and it works really good. You can read my write-up. Here's, here's what this stuff does for you. It improves seed germination, increases root development, increases blossom set, size of flowers and fruit. It increases and stabilizes chlorophyll in plants, which results in darker green leaves and increased sugar content. It relieves stress in plants caused by extreme weather conditions. It increases plant vigor. It increases microorganisms in the soil. It increases mineral uptake from the soil. So not only does it provide minerals, it makes the plant better able to access the minerals that are already there. It increases the storage life of your fruits and vegetables by retarding loss of protein, chlorophyll, and RNA. And it reduces and retards the aging process in plants, thereby lengthening the production season. It does all that. And that's what, because I'm a science guy, that's what science says about liquid kelp as a garden amendment. So it's the time of year to shore that up. That's why I brought it around today. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. The song of the day today is a song called Paradise. And it's by a guy named John Prine. Many of you probably have never heard of The song is old, 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 old. It's older than me by one year, 1971. Uh, it's called Paradise again. And Pine wrote this track after his father sent him a newspaper clipping about a quaint town in Kentucky called Paradise where the singer had spent summers with his grandparents as a teen, and it was bought by a coal mining company. Pine said the bulldozers, the bulldozers came in and wiped it all off the map. He recalled when he uh, was talking to Performing Songwriter magazine, he said, When I recorded the song, I brought the tape uh, of the record home to my dad. I had to borrow a reel-to-reel machine to play it for him. When the song came on, he went in the next room and sat in the dark while it was on. I asked him why, and he said he wanted to pretend it was on a jukebox. It's kind of interesting and kind of sad at the same time. And there's so many places like this in the world that have been wiped off the map. And it's not always the coal company that's the bad guys. There's so many little quaint places that have just been destroyed for profit. And we can't rewrite history. We can't change that. But we can protect and preserve what's left. And, see, I'm a believer that capitalism isn't the problem. Capitalism is the solution. Why did this quaint little town called Paradise get wiped off the map? Why was, why was a coal company capable of buying the entire town to strip mine, It literally in this case? Because the town didn't have enough vibrance and money to support itself. When we develop local economies into strong local economies, people don't sell their entire town, their entire way of life, to a giant corporation. They're strong and they can last. That's how to build your life. That's how to build your town. That's how to build your community. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. When I was a child, my family would travel 
Down to western Kentucky Where my parents were born And there's a backwards old town That's often remembered So many times That my memories are warm And daddy won't you take me Back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River Where paradise lay Well I'm sorry my son But you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's gold train is all little way. Well, sometimes we travel right down the Green River to the abandoned old prison down by Avery Hill, where the air smell like snakes. We'd shoot with our pistols, but empty pop bottles was all we would kill. And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lay Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's gold train is hauling away And the coal company came with the world's largest shovel And they tortured the timber and stripped all the land Well, they dug for their coal till the land was forsaken Then they rode it all down as the progress of man And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lay well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's cold train is hauled it away. When I die, let my ashes float down the Green River. Let my soul roll on up to the Rochester Dam. I'll be halfway to heaven with paradise Five miles away from wherever I am And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lays Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's gold train is hauled it away oh, 